All right. Like I said, we're in Matthew 26 today. And we're going to make it about halfway through. So Jesus, he's been going around. Remember we had the triumphal entry. Everybody was cheering for him. Save us now. Save us now. And um, just celebrating. And he was starting to teach and, and proclaim that he really is the son of man. He really is the Christ. And more and more people are following him and believing him and sticking around and listening to him. He flipped all the tables. He ran out the animals. And Matthew 25, he gave these teachings about when the coming of the Son of Man is going to be. Because everybody thinks that when the Messiah comes, it's going to be the end of the world. It's just going to change everything. You could, you could get up in the morning, you could walk outside, and the rabbis could look around and they'd be like, nope, the Messiah didn't come yet. I can just tell there's a cloud in the sky. You know, I can just tell there's dirt out of place. You know, whatever. Something was wrong. The Messiah hadn't come yet. Because when the Messiah comes, everything's going to be fixed. Everything's going to be made right. And so Matthew 25 was kind of correcting some of those ideas to say when the Son of Man comes, there is going to be judgment. And there is going to be a separation, right? The, the sheep and the goats on the right and the left. And there is going to be some sort of a, a reconciling for what we did and a reconciling for what we believed. But it's not going to be, you know, all the Romans are dead and now the Jewish people get Israel and we rule the world. It's a lot more than that. But now, he's done saying all that. That's what Matthew 26 verse 1 starts. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, right, he's all done. He wraps it all up with, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. We're two days away from the Passover. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Not just killed, not just stoned, not just thrown in jail to starve, but crucified. Crucifixion was the worst way to die. It was so humiliating. It was uh, a mockery. We, we don't have anything like this in our culture. Praise God. Um, it's kind of like what you would hear about you know, in history of these ancient kings doing these horrible things to people or the, uh, the Dracula guy and how he would just make people suffer and torture people or the Spanish Inquisition or something like that. But Jesus knows clearly that that's how he's going to die. He's going to die the most painful, shameful death there is. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But then they said, not during the feast, otherwise there will be an uproar of the people. So the chief priests, the elders, these guys have all had their money changers. You know, the money changers have happened. All the animals were run out of the temple. All these kids were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're proclaiming, Jesus has come in the name of God. 
which is a big deal. I mean, that, that gives him authority like God has authority. And so now they're saying, look, we've got to secretly arrest this guy and we've got to kill him. How are we going to do it? So let's talk about this event. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time. The high priest was everything you read about in Leviticus and Numbers. He's taking the offering once a year, Day of Atonement, and all of that stuff. But he's also like the political leader of the Jewish people, right? Kind of like the Pope today. Like the Pope, yeah, he says Mass and has communion and hears confession, but it's kind of like celebrity communion, you know, and like celebrity confession. Because he's also the political leader of all these people. And so the high priest was sort of political and sort of spiritual. So Rome is in charge. Rome is bossing around the high priest. You know, the Jewish people don't like being led by Rome. So there are some of the Jewish people that want to have a high priest that's a radical that'll show those Romans who God is and and defend their religion. And then there are other Jewish people that are like, dude, do not rock the boat. Rome will kill us all. Let's just lay low. This is still going on today, right? This is still happening. This careful, delicate dance of politics and the people and religion. Well, listen to this. Caiaphas was high priest for 18 years. From 18 AD to 36 AD. So Caiaphas, the way the high priesthood worked, the way it was supposed to work, was it was by your um, heredity, your, your ancestry. If your dad was a high priest, then one of you or your brothers were going to be the high priest. Because you had to be a descendant of Aaron, you had to be a right, you know. And you would be the high priest for life until you died. The important thing about being a high priest until you died, there's this whole other thing in Leviticus that um, if you accidentally kill somebody, alright, so let's say Jim and I are out chopping wood. This is the example they give, but not with me and Jim. And he swings that axe, and the axe head flies off and kills me dead. He didn't kill me in anger. It's just an accident, but I'm dead. So now my brother's going to kill you, Jim. But if you can make it to a refuge city before my brother makes it to you, you can live all the rest of your days in safety in that refuge city. Until the high priest dies. And when the high priest dies and there's a new high priest, then you're completely free. And you can go back and my brother won't hunt you down and kill you. And you can go back and, you know, live in Evansville again. You don't have to live in the refuge city that's full of accidental murderers, by the way, right? There was only three of them. Well, there's three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side of the Jordan. And everybody that accidentally killed somebody went there and lived there with a whole bunch of Levites until the high priest died. So Rome messed all that up. 
And instead of putting somebody in as a high priest until they died, they would put somebody in as high priest until they weren't doing a good job. It's a big difference, right? So if Rome didn't like the job you were doing, they I don't know if they would kill you or just fire you. But you'd be out of a job, they'd put a new high priest in. From 37 B.C. to 67 A.D., so 37 to 67, there were 28 high priests. So the average career of a high priest in, under Roman rule was three and a half years. Three and a half years. That was the average. But Caiaphas lasted 18 years. So what does that tell you? He knew how to make Rome happy. And he knew how to keep the people happy. See, if the people aren't happy, they riot. And Rome says, we can't have riots. You're not doing a good job. Boom. Next high priest. If Rome isn't happy, well, Rome isn't happy and you get fired. So Caiaphas had this 18-year career... And he actually died. And like this this will come up later on in, in the trial and all that stuff. So here's Caiaphas. He's a guy and he's like, hey, whoa, whoa, we can't arrest Jesus during the feast because there will be a riot. Okay, here's the other thing Caiaphas is afraid of. So Rome, this is in, in history, they wanted to do a census of how many Jews came to Jerusalem during the Passover. But if you have a census, if you're, if, you're, if you're Rome and the Jewish people hate you and you do a census, they're just going to hate you more. Because the only reason you're going to do a census is for taxes or armies. That's the only reason Rome was going to do a, a, a census. So probably Caiaphas was like, okay, okay, don't do a census. I got another idea. Somebody thought this up. We don't know who it was. Instead of counting the people, at Passover, every family has to sacrifice a Passover lamb for their family, right? And if the high priest is going to do whatever Rome says without argument, let's just get the high priest to count how many Passover lambs get sacrificed. Because if every family has to have a Passover lamb, you guess an average of how big a family is, you count the lambs, and now you know how many people there are. Okay? So they did that. Isn't it? This is like perfect. So, we don't know if it was the year that Jesus was crucified or not. It was sometime in that range, but they counted 250,000 Passover lambs. So think that through for a minute. On the day of Passover, when you're taking your lamb in for the high priest to kill it, and then you take it home and eat it, like think about Black Friday at Walmart. Can you? Because Jerusalem's the only place this can happen. I mean, the Passover lamb, there it is. So there were two hundred and a quarter of a million Passover lambs. They estimate that a whole lamb would feed 10 to 11 people. 
that 11 will be important here in a second. So at the time of a Passover, somewhere, maybe not exactly around Jesus, but one of those years near it, there were 2,750,000 people within walking distance of Jerusalem. Almost 3 million people. Isn't that amazing? So when Caiaphas says, let's not arrest him in public, let's wait until after the Passover, he is trying to control a 3 million person uprising. Keep that, we're not talking about today, but keep that in mind, probably next week or the week after that, when there's a crowd shouting, crucify him. Like, it's not a crowd like an Aces basketball game crowd, right? It's a crowd like the mall in Washington, D.C. when it's packed. Uh, it's, like, it's like when the Cubs won the World Series and they would fly that helicopter over it and everything just looked purple because there was so much red and blue because there were so many millions of people. That's how many people are there. So, keep that perspective as we're going through passion. All right, Jesus isn't there. Jesus isn't a part of that discussion. Let's skip back over to Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 6. One of my favorite inside joke secret lines that's in the New Testament is Matthew 26, 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... That's it. That's all. That's the statement. So if you were a leper, nobody would ever come to your house. Your house would be so unclean. Your house would be so nasty and unholy and evil. Um, according to some of the laws in Leviticus and Numbers, they may have to tear your house down and you're, you would just have a vacant lot of rubble. But not here. Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper having dinner and they're eating and they're having a feast. Which means that Simon the leper no longer had leprosy. He had been healed of his leprosy. That's the only way they could have eaten. The only way they could have eaten at this house. There's one other theory that Simon wasn't there. It was the home of Simon the leper that he was a guy that had leprosy and so he left and now they're all in his house. That is possible. I don't think that's likely. I think from other stuff that we see, uh, Simon was healed of his leprosy, but he still had the name. So that means it all of a sudden becomes a joke, right? Go ask Simon the leper. I'm not going to ask him if he's a leper. Oh, he's not a leper anymore. Let me tell you about it. A woman, this is Matthew 26, verse 7. A woman came up to him, this is Jesus, with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They weren't just angry. They were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? 
she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So, this lady is bold, right? She comes in. You know, we've talked about before, the way they would eat is they would kind of lean on the floor and kind of sit on the floor and you could recline in different ways. You wouldn't ever put your feet near the table because your feet are nasty. But there's ways that you can sit on the floor and you can lean on your elbow and you can lean on your side and you can sit up and sit sideways that your feet are away so it would be easy. This happened a couple times to Jesus where a woman would come crying and, and could wash his feet without interrupting the meal, sort of. Uh, that would drive me crazy. I'm like crazy ticklish on my feet. So whenever I read this, I'm like, how is that even possible, Jesus? She anoints his head. She anoints his feet. And this perfume is expensive. Oh, boy. All right, so get ready. It's estimated from the other gospel accounts and the way they describe this, that this perfume was worth 300 days wages. So you'd have to work for 300 days, so almost a year, right? Because you're counting the Sabbath, you're off on the Sabbath. So, it, I mean, it's close to a year. To pay for this bottle of perfume that she just dumped on Jesus. All of it. The whole bit. Gone. The disciples are mad. There's an, in, uh, I think it's in Luke, it actually says that Judas was the one that was mad because he used to steal their money. But in Matthew it says, the disciples. So there's more than one. There's other people that are around. It wasn't, it's easy to say Judas said this because he's greedy and he's stealing money from him, so he wants the money for himself. But this is really kind of like, you know, I do it all the time. The way that we judge people on how they spend their money, right? Does he really need a nice car like that? Does he really need a watch that's that, that's that shiny? You know, here we are. But they were judging this lady. And they were judging Jesus because Jesus allowed it. Jesus didn't say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Let's give this money to the poor instead. So they're mad. And they, they say the money could have been given to the poor. So, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? This, this is like grandmaster level Bible trivia. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he told the disciples, why don't you guys give, give all these people something to eat? And one of the disciples said, it would cost 200 days wages to feed all of these people. 200. So to feed 5,000 people, it would cost 200. What this lady just dumped on Jesus cost 300. So just, whoa, wow. Like what she just poured on Jesus, it's not just a year's wage, but it's enough to feed 
You could, like, you want to give that money to the poor to feed? You could feed over 5,000 people with it. And she just poured it on Jesus. And Jesus says this thing, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the law, and he says these two things back to back that kind of contradict each other. That there shouldn't be any poor people among you. That nobody should be greedy. That nobody should try to get too much. And that you should take care of one another so that there shouldn't be any poor people among you. Then two chapters later, God gives this law about about how you have to feed the priests and you have to take care of them. And save this for the poor because you'll always have the poor with you. So in, in one chapter, he says there shouldn't be any poor people among you. Two chapters later, he says you're always going to have poor people. Why? Well, because God knew all the laws that he said about don't be greedy, don't steal from people, be generous. He knew they weren't going to follow those laws. And by not following those laws, and for a whole lot of other reasons, you have poor people. Right? I don't want to make it sound like it's all the rich people's fault that they're poor people. It's, sometimes it's the poor people's fault too, right? I mean, it's rough. So when Jesus says you'll always have the poor with you, he's not giving up. It's not a all hope is lost. Oh, there's just no way to solve poverty. You solve poverty by solving sin. And who's going to solve sin? Jesus. Jesus is more important than trying to save up and give money to poverty. The other thing here is that He's here. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. There are times and there are opportunities. It seems like you should always take care of the poor person, right? It seems like you should always do the charity, do the good, the do-gooder, the good deed thing. There are times where Jesus would have us draw near to Him, that there's a Jesus moment, and that's what's more important at that moment. And this time, it's, it's right here with Him. The other part is He says right there to Him, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared my body for burial. I don't know. I miss stuff. I don't know. I'm not always paying attention. Um, I'm awkward with being polite sometimes. But in this whole conversation, if Jesus just said, yeah, she put that on me to anoint my body for burial. Forget the $300, Jesus. What are you talking about? You just got anointed for burial. Like, you're still talking about dying. He's still talking about getting ready to die. He's so convinced that he sees this as preparing his body for burial. So Matthew tells the story a little bit differently. Mark, Luke, and John tell it a little bit differently. So this happened. Matthew goes straight in from this money could have been used to pay for the poor. This money could have been used for something useful. Straight to Judas. Now remember, Mark was the first gospel to be written. 
Mark was breaking news. We're going to leave out a whole bunch of details. We just got to get the message out really quick. And they wrote Mark. Mark wrote Mark. Matthew came next. Matthew gives a little bit more details. But Matthew is written while many of the disciples are still alive. While some of the disciples are even still in Jerusalem, Matthew is written written down. And so the other big deal, Luke, so Mark was written probably dictated or with consultation with Peter. So it's going to be really accurate because Peter was there, right? But Mark was sort of there off and on. Matthew was there. John was there but he wrote his gospel years later. So the things that he focuses on are the more emotional things about how much he loved Jesus and Jesus loved him rather than the specific events. Okay. So there's a little bit of authority with Matthew mentioning this event of this money could have been given to the poor instead. Then Judas did this. So he is tying Judas's greed right into this event of this lady. What did this lady do? She paid a year's work, a year of her labor. She, she gave to Jesus. And now to contrast that, we're going to have Judas take and make money off of Jesus. Matthew 26, 14. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. So remember, there's only two days till the Passover. So it's sometime in the last two days of Jesus' life, Judas left to talk to the chief priests. And he said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Isn't it wild that the chief priests, they don't just arrest Judas because he's with them. Oh, you're one of them. We need to arrest you too. Because they don't care about Judas. They don't care about any of his followers. They just want to kill Jesus. And Judas is the one that makes the offer. It's not like... You know, they put up signs around that said 30 pieces of silver to anybody that can bring us Jesus of Nazareth. Judas went. He, he deliberately went to them and asked this. And this is Passover week. And there's almost 3 million people in town. Do you think it's going to be easy to get access to the, the high priests or the chief priests? It's not. So Judas really had to go to some work and effort to think this out. This wasn't just a whim or a Hey, I got a crazy idea. Why don't I go do this? He, it took a lot for him to do this. So they paid him 30 pieces of silver. This is wild because this is... A lot of people say this is the going rate for a slave. This is what Judah, uh, Joseph, Joseph was sold for. The going rate of a slave. This is the equivalent. So remember we were talking about daily wages, right? What the lady poured on Jesus was 300 days wages. What 
it would have taken to feed 5,000 people. So it was a year's wages to of what she poured on Jesus. It was about nine to ten months wages to pay all of these people, to, to feed all these 5,000 people. What they paid Judas was six months wages. Those 30 coins would have been six months of income for him. So you got this little parable right there, right? Of, I mean, not to make it economical, but we're talking about money. Following Jesus or trying to profit off of him, surrendering to Jesus and showing him love. How there's a, a thing I was reading talking about the economics of generosity and the economics of love. How that lady didn't calculate in her head how much this perfume cost to get the most return on her investment towards her offering to Jesus. She loved Jesus so much, she just wanted to dump the whole bottle on Giving the whole thing. Whereas Judas, who's trying to make money off of Jesus, he's calculating. Oh, so what's it worth to you? Do you want to negotiate a deal? How much can I get for this? And he doesn't get nearly, he doesn't get anything close to what, what love what devotion, what surrender to Jesus brings about. It's kind of awful, isn't it? Because you think, man, what would Judas have gotten if he, hadn't, if he hadn't taken that money? He would have, I mean, he's called the son of perdition. He's called all sorts of horrible things, even in the scriptures. But he sold it out for six months of wages. So now the first day of unleavened bread comes. This is going to be our... We're going to wrap it up at the Last Supper here. It says, The first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came and said, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? The Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days of partying. Like Passover was the Passover meal and it was the Passover night. But then you would celebrate it all week long. You would celebrate the Passover. He said, go in the city, you'll see a certain man. It says certain man here because they, didn't, they, they may have known exactly who he was, but they didn't want to put his name in here because he was still alive when Matthew wrote this. You're going to see a man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, I'll keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did just as Jesus directed, and they went and got ready for the Passover. He comes, he reclines at the table. They're doing the Passover meal. They're doing all the readings, all the things that you recite, all the things that you say to remember. Somewhere in the middle of the meal, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it me, Lord? Is it I? So they're all upset. They're all around the table. They all, he said, one of you is going to betray me. It's almost like they, they don't know which one of them it's going to be. I, I respect that a little bit because I used to tell guys at the mission, I know you may have done something terrible, and I'm not going to treat you like I could have never done that because I have all the capacity to do the same evil thing you did. I just haven't done it. Right? We're all capable 
of tremendous sin. God gives us that freedom, and it's terrible to think about, but if we're humble, we know it's true. So these guys are saying, is it me, Lord? Am I the one that's going to betray you? They, they can't believe it themselves. He says, he who's dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So we read that and we're like, well, why couldn't they all just look at it and be like, oh, it's him. Because it's kind of like salsa at Hacienda. They just bring you one. I don't know if they do this now with COVID. They probably don't. It's probably better now that they don't. But it's like one big salsa bowl and everybody's dipping in it. So to say, he who dips his bread with me is the one that did it. They're all going to be looking at each other like, well, that doesn't help us at all. We are all dipping in the same... It's like the sausage dip thing that you have at a party in the crock pot. Whoever ate out of this crock pot is going to betray me. Jesus, that could be any one of us. But it's important that Jesus says that because that fulfills a prophecy. I think it's in Zechariah. That the one who dips his bread with me will betray me. That means that somebody super close. Someone super close to me is going to betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written to him of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. He would be better off. Wow. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He says, You said so. You have said it. So some people read that and they think, you know, you could read this as Judas really didn't know he was betraying Jesus. He didn't know it was a betrayal. Uh, some people think that Judas was just trying to make Jesus get the sword out and just bring on, you know, make, make what's inevitable going to happen. I don't, I don't think a lot of stuff points to that because of all the cursing and condemnation on Judas. If Judas was necessary to do it to make it happen, that seems kind of unfair, right? To, to condemn him for something that he was going to do anyway, that he didn't have a choice. I think Judas had a choice. It, it mentions it a couple places, how the effort he had to go to to turn in Jesus. Listen to this. This is uh, William Barclay said this. However we look at Judas's life... The tragedy is that he refused to accept Jesus as he was and he tried to make Jesus what he wanted him to be. Instead of looking at Jesus and taking Jesus for who Jesus was, he tried to make Jesus into something. Either a way to make money, either uh, I'm going to make this happen so Jesus will pull the sword out and really start killing off some Romans. It's not Jesus who can be changed by us, but we who must be changed by Jesus. We can never use Jesus for our own purposes. We should submit to be used by His. The tragedy of Judas is that of a man who thought he knew better than God. So he tried to manipulate Jesus or manipulate the high priest. And then... The Lord's Supper, right? Communion, the, the this is my body. And it, it, this happens at 26, 26. 
Jesus took the bread after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take this, this is my body. He took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is a blood of my covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of this fits into the Passover meal, and the symbolism is amazing, and it's just awesome that Jesus is the unleavened bread. He is our sustenance and our life. His blood is, is this drink probably the third or the fourth cup that you drink at a Passover meal. Then he says, I will not drink this again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Gives a little insight to the second coming. Then he says it again. Not only are you all going to betray me, but you're all going to fall away and abandon me. Every one of them says... No, we won't, Jesus. We won't fall away. They all debate with him. Oh, I missed the one verse. They left. They left the dinner. Now they're going out to the Mount of Olives. And they're still talking about all this. And that's where Jesus says, 2634, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So we focus on Peter, and it's right that we focus on Peter. But all of the disciples said, I will never deny you. And we'll see, as Jesus goes to the cross, every one of them does. In one way or another. Well... This whole section, the thing I really want to, I want to sit on, I want you to take with you this week, is the value of surrendering to God, to surrendering to Jesus. Because you've got this lady who brought 300 days worth, you know, a year's worth of perfume and offered it to Jesus, just out of love. She just gave her all. You've got this other guy that's trying to get something. And he didn't even get half of that. And he's Judas. He's trying to get something out of Jesus to manipulate him to his own way. Look at, look at how these two profited. Look at how these two benefited from their life, right? This lady who's just like, I love you, Jesus. I want to give you all that I have. Jesus says, every time we tell this story, she's going to be blessed. We're going to bless her. Judas, what can I get out of you? I'm not getting what I want, Jesus. I want more. Everywhere this story is told, Judas is the bad guy, right? Nobody, please do not tell me your next great-grandbaby is going to be named Judas. Right? There's Marys all over the place, because this is probably Mary that was washing Jesus' feet. Nobody's going to name their kid Judas. So as we go, let's try to find, you know, am I just loving Jesus with all that I have? Or am I trying to get something out of it? Because he, He's giving. He's loving. He gives like crazy. And He loves you so much. He loved this lady so much. He forgave all of her sins. And she just loves back. He loved Judas. But Judas was just take, take, take. And... There's ways that we can be just like that, right? He'll let us do it, just like he let Judas do it. All right, let's pray. Lord, 
that is the prayer of our hearts. We want to fully embrace the love that you have shown us by forgiving our sins and giving us new life. And we just want to pour that love back, Lord. We don't want to calculate. We don't want to negotiate. We don't even want to budget. We just want to love you with all, with 100% all to you, Lord, for our whole life. We praise you. We thank you that you put your Holy Spirit in us to do these things and to actually act on it. And I pray that you would help us to do it this week. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right. Let's sing number 199 together.